Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. It is good to gather. One brother came to me just a minute ago and said, it is so good to gather with God's saints. I want to read to you, this is not the text for today, but just to remind us of the privilege of it is that we have to come together here. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And when we gather as the body of Christ, we gather to go vertical and worship him who is the head. It's a great privilege to do that. It's so good to see you here this morning. Welcome to everybody who's gathered online. Somewhere along the way in working on this series, I came across this analogy that the Beatitudes are nails into a coffin. They won the world are you talking about? Well, inside this coffin lies a false understanding of salvation. Namely, that you can be saved without being sanctified. That you can be converted without being changed. The Beatitudes puts that false understanding where it belongs in the coffin. Now, about two months ago, when I kicked off this series, you might remember I talked about when God does a supernatural work of regeneration in our hearts, when he rips out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh so that we can see our sin and run to the Savior for forgiveness and relationship with God, when that happens, the seeds of these beatitudes are implanted in our heart so that every true believer somewhere inside of himself or herself has a desire to grow and reflect these kingdom beatitudes. That we have a responsibility to cultivate these seeds so that, in fact, we more and more show off what life in the kingdom looks like. Now, that means that if you're here or listening and you have confessed Christ but really haven't been changed since confessing Christ, that you're going to have one of two responses. One response is, is you are going to remain dead in trespasses and sins in that coffin, saying, well, I, I did pray the prayer, and that dead confession of faith will not do you a hill of beans of good at that day. Or you're going to say, get this pine box lid off of me. I'm alive in Christ. What am I doing? I need to get after it, and I need to grow. And every true believer when they are exposed to what Jesus talks about living for him looks like, there's something in our hearts that says, man, I'm not all that I want, that, that, that I should be, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be, and now I want to get after it and look more like Jesus. Is that you this morning? Because today we come to a benchmark beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers. Peace. Everybody loves to talk about peace. John Lennon had a pretty good song about peace. Imagine. It's a pretty beautiful song. Ron Artest, former NBA player, renamed himself. He's got another name now. Officially, what was it? Meta World Peace, which is kind of ironic because Ron was known to have a few rounds of fisticuffs with players on the court as well as fans in the stands, but he renamed himself World Peace. And then, of course, we know that every election cycle, politicians on both sides of the aisle say, if you just vote for me, I will usher in peace. Everybody talks about peace. Somewhere in all of our fallen hearts, everybody wants peace. But very few people actually have peace. Why? Because without God, there will be no true lasting peace. Without God, there can be no true lasting peace. God, he's very passionate about peace, is he not? He is often called throughout the 66 books of Scripture, the God of all peace. Romans 15 and verse 30, may the God of all peace be with you. God is passionate about peace. Do you know that in the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament, the word peace occurs explicitly over 400 times. And then if you were to count all the indirect, implicit references to peace, they would be too numerous to count. God is is a God of peace. The storyline of Scripture, if you're new to this sacred book, is the storyline of peace. The Scripture is a book of peace. What begins in the garden with peace, the Bible, ends in eternity with peace. But in between, there's this little something or another we call the fall. There is radically no peace because humanity plunged itself into sin. But because God is the God of all peace after all, he, Isaiah 9, 6, 6, sent his son to be the prince of peace. You know that Christmas passage, right? And when the prince of peace came, he came in order to make peace. And while on earth, the prince of peace who came to make peace between God and men and man and God declared, peace I leave you, peace I give you, not as the world gives peace. So God is a God of peace. And all of that is the backdrop for the call of this morning and the call of our lives. The God who is the ultimate peacemaker calls all who would follow him to be peacemakers themselves. Pretty simple stuff. Pretty profound stuff. We're just going to march through this beatitude like we have all the rest. First of all, taking the first portion of the sentence, the first clause, what does it mean, number one, that we are to be peacemakers? What does that mean? Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. So as I have in the previous messages through these beatitudes, I'm going to peel away some false understandings. False understanding number one of what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker is not an appeaser or conflict avoider. 
Because it's easy to think that, right? Well, the peacemaker, I stay away from all conflict. No, no, no. A peacemaker is not an appeaser or avoid conflict at all costs kind of person. You know, such a person, they just, they just don't want any conflict, so they appease and they avoid conflict and confrontation at all costs. Does, does it work? It does work in the immediate, right? In the short term. But what inevitably happens is conflict happens later and it's all the worse than it could have been if it was addressed earlier. Somebody once said that a conflict avoided can sometimes be merely a conflict postponed. Have you ever heard of the guy named, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, N-E-V-I-L-L-E, Neville or Neville Chamberlain? history bus would know that he was the prime minister in Britain as the winds of World War II were starting to blow. And he is infamously, infam infamously, did I say that right? Known as a guy who did nothing but appease the Third Reich, Nazi Germany. He, he did not want to go war, to war. And as a result, one has to wonder had he actually stepped up to that conflict, would millions or perhaps at least hundreds of thousands of innocent Jewish people not gone to the gas chambers had he not been an appeaser? Along comes, what's the next prime minister? Winston Churchill, and he stepped up into that conflict because it was the right thing to do. And by the way, if you know anything about history, America was kind of slow to that fight as well. What I'm trying to say is this, sometimes there has to be conflict before, in fact, in, fa in fact, there's peace. It's just the way it is. And I think that might be something Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 34 when he says, do not think that I came, speaking about his first coming, to bring, ultimately what he came to do, that I came to bring peace, but what? That doesn't seem to add up. He's the prince of peace. Yes, but he understands for real peace to happen, there has to be um, a confronting of truth. This is not only true on a global level, but let's just bring it down to where we live. It's true on the marriage level. It's true on all, every kind of human relationship level. Colin Smith said this. Think about this. Every broken marriage had a, had a point where strife began. The first harsh word, the first moment of distrust, you did not see it necessarily at the time, but the end was way back then in the beginning. You look back and you say, if I could go back to that moment and change what happened and address it, I might be in a different place today. But you can't go back. So here's what we learn. Deal with it early. And by the way, if that's you, you can't go back, but you can deal with it now. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? A peacemaker, I'm just trying to drive this point home, is not one who avoids any and all conflict and confrontation out of hand. 
A peacemaker is not merely a person who is passive. Because if there's a beef and it's not addressed, that passivity soon becomes passive aggressiveness. And how many households and churches and relationships have been poisoned because of that toxicity? To be a peacemaker doesn't mean that you fold your hand when you have a biblical conviction, though you're surrounded by a chorus of people who say, oh, that's not right, that's not true. A peacemaker is not an appeaser or conflict avoider at all costs. Now, I want to be clear, a peacemaker is also not a quarrelsome person, right? Not a person who says, I got a chip on my shoulder, why don't you try knocking it off? A peacemaker who doesn't make an issue out of everything, right? Who always wants to pick a fight. We're not talking about that. Am I clear? But I want to be clear on this. A peacemaker is also not a cowardly person. Let me tell you what else a peacemaker is not. A peacemaker is not a truth or call to repentance avoider. Remember that old prophet, that wild-haired guy, Jeremiah? What did the people think of Jeremiah in the main? I know you're reading through Jeremiah right now. We talked about that the other day, Arpith. Were they real keen on this dude? No. Why? Well, because he kind of preached truth and he called people to repentance. He was not well thought of by the majority of Israelites. They would, and, then, and then these false prophets came along and they'd say, don't listen to that crazy guy. He's just, he takes the Bible too literally for crying out loud. He's a fire and brimstone guy. Take no thought about him. No worries. Everything's cool between you and God. Peace, peace. What, is, what, is, what does Jeremiah say about that? He says of those people, they healed the wound of my people lightly. They didn't dig out the infection. Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed, he says, when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I will punish, punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Hmm. Even today, sometimes people say, you know, about pastors in different places, you, you, you really shouldn't talk about that issue. You should leave that alone. I mean, I know it's kind of true, but it's so controversial, and, and you could hurt, you know, people, feelings could be hurt. So you, you should just keep the peace. Yeah, and that would be keeping a false peace, right? We have to be clear that peace without truth and without repentance is nothing but a sham. Because this verse is often hijacked out of context. A peacemaker, first of all, is not an appeaser or conflict avoider at all costs. It's not a truth or call to repentance avoider. So let's cut to the chase. What is it? Peace. Do you know, even to this day, how Orthodox Jews greet each other? With what word? Shalom. I wish, I could, we, I wish we could all go to Brooklyn and hear one Orthodox Jew say to another, it's beautiful. Shalom. It's a word of peace. It's the Old Testament word for peace. It's a greeting. And in that greeting, packed into this idea of peace, or the Old Testament word shalom, isn't merely the absence of conflict, it definitely includes that, but also the presence of shalom, which is wholeness rooted in experiencing the goodness and the righteousness of God. 
That's kind of the idea generically or generally, but specifically in context. A peacemaker is simply this. A person who seeks shalom between people and God and people and people. If I were to say, were to say it even more specifically, I would put it this way. A peacemaker, you want to, might want to write this down. A peacemaker actively seeks to see people reconciled to God and then people reconciled to people. What is a peacemaker? One who actively works to see people reconciled to God and people to people. That answers part one. What is a peacemaker? It's that. Number two, what does it mean, according to the latter part of this verse, shall be called the sons of God? Does it mean we all become like mini, mini deities or something? What is he talking about there? No, not quite. What's really interesting is that in the Bible, there are two words that describe the relationship between a believer and God as the relationship of a child to a father. It's really beautiful. I know the world says everybody's a child of God. No, everybody's created by God. But until you experience a new birth and are birthed into God's family, God is not yet your father. But he's got two really awesome terms to describe those who have trusted Christ and have been birthed into God's family, making God their father. The first word is the word technon. It is a word that highlights the lavish affection God has for all of his kids in Christ. Lavish affection. You should think of a father with his little baby boy or, or daughter on his lap. Or, or maybe think of an older kid uh, wrestling with dad on the living room floor. You can actually wrestle with younger kids. You can wrestle with uh, Ian if you're listening. Older kids, but when they get a little too strong, then you kind of stop that and you love them a different way, lavishly, so they don't lavish a spanking on you. But it's, a, it, it, it's, it's the idea of a father with an older kid spending time with them. It is, a, it is a term of lavish affection. It's the heart of God beating in love for those who are his kids. It's beautiful. It's 1 John 3, one kind of thing. Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the technon, the children of God. That's one term. Beautiful, isn't it? But there's a second term, huas. Whereas the other term highlights the lavish affection God has for those in Christ, for his kids, for his sons and daughters, this term emphasizes the legal position that cements and secures it. Here you should think of, say, a birth certificate or a will of inheritance where you see that son or that daughter is going to receive what that father has because that son or daughter is really a daughter or son of that father. They have the same last name. And that is exactly the term that is being communicated here, that you really belong to God. That you belong to a peacemaking God as evidenced by the fact that you are a peacemaking person. And it's a future continuous tense, shall be called the sons of God. You will never not be a son of God. Lavish affection and a legal position that is unbreakable. There is this, this, this undeniable reality that true sons and daughters resemble their father, right? 
Now, I understand um, if, if, if it may not be the case physically if they've been adopted. And by the way, every Christian is actually adopted into God's family. But nonetheless, there will be resistance, rather resemblance. Take, uh, take my youngest son. I know he doesn't exactly look like me. He has hair and I don't and all that, right? But man, he resembles dad. He has the Hanafi affliction that I think it starts with me of laughing at his own jokes when no one else does. Carolyn, you share that gifting as well, right? And if you can't laugh at your own jokes, why would you expect anybody to? Sometimes people start laughing because they think they missed something, and then you get them that way, right? Or he just does the same practical jokes. If you've been around my house or around him any time, he'll say, hey, look over there. He'll stick his finger right next to your cheek, and then you turn your head, and you'll jab his finger, and he'll say, ha, ha, I got you. You know, even this morning, I'm taking a shower, just thinking about the sermon, and all of a sudden, a splash of cold water ran across my body. He poured cold water on me while I was taking a shower, as I've done to him, okay? True kids, in some way, resemble their father. That's the point here, right? And if a peacemaking God is really your father, then you are going to be a peacemaking child. John MacArthur put it this way. Peacemaking is a hallmark of God's children. It's a hallmark. So is peacemaking a hallmark of your life? He goes on to say, a person who is not a peacemaker is either not a Christian or a disobedient Christian. The person who is continuously disruptive, divisive, and quarrelsome has good reason to doubt his relationship to God altogether. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 makes it crystal clear. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So are you resembling a peacemaking God by being a peacemaking person? That's the second part I would talk about. What is a peacemaker? One who actively works to see people reconciled to God and people to people Number two, what does it mean she'll become called sons of God? That you really belong to him because you reflect by your own peacemaking, a peacemaking God who made peace with you. Now, the third point is this, and it's got three parts to it, and this is kind of the brass tack, so stay with me. There are three aspects to walking out our peacemaking position or beatitude or calling as Christians. There is an inward aspect there's an outward aspect, and then there's an upward aspect. In other words, personally, relationally, and evangelistically. Inward, outward, upward. We're going to start with personally or inward. At the risk of being redundant, and, and really you can't ever be redundant with the gospel, if you will be a peacemaker, you better make sure you have peace with God. Or maybe I should put it this way, God has peace with you. Have you ever heard of Don Richardson? He wrote a fascinating book called Peace Child. He was a missionary to the Sawi tribe of Indonesia. This was a cannibalistic, head-hunting tribe. And he was having the most difficult time communicating the meaning of Christ's atoning death 
to a group of people who highly valued and cherished and championed as virtues treachery, revenge, and murder. He just could not get the gospel across to them. One day he heard the legend of what was called the peace child, where within this Sawi tribe of people, when one village in that tribe was at war with another village, that if one of the tribes gave the other, one of the villages rather, gave the other village a baby boy, for as long as that baby boy remained alive, there would be peace between those villages in the cannibalistic Sawi tribe. And when he heard that, that helped him just unlock the meaning of the gospel to them. He said, listen, let me tell you about the ultimate peace child. God sent his son to live among us. And not just to live among us, but to live perfectly among us. And then to die in our place and to rise again. And if you turn to him, you have peace with God and God has peace with you. Pretty cool story, isn't it? He was able to contextualize the gospel without changing the gospel. Beautiful, beautiful lesson right there. But you might be here as a Westerner here in 21st century America, and you say, you know, that's, that's a cool story, Mike, about the cannibalistic tribe and how they got changed and all that, but, but I ain't no cannibalistic headhunter. Well, at the risk of offending you, you might be a little bit closer than you think. But putting that aside just for the moment, it is true that the average person thinks that they're cool with God and God's cool with them. And if anything, they're the ones that should have the beef because God doesn't always do what I think you ought to do. And sometimes hard stuff happens in my life. So I should have a beef against him, but I'm still cool with him. And of course, he's cool with me, Santa Claus in the sky. And that twofold premise is radically wrong on both counts. Humanity is like the crew in Mutiny on the Bounty. You remember when they, they, they threw, if you know the story, they threw Captain Bly overboard and, and like seven or eight others. The crew did. But if you had seen the crew after they had jettisoned this guy and some other guys, you would have thought, that's a pretty good group of people. That's a fine band of men. They came up with a nice little, nice little leadership structure after Captain Bly was thrown overboard. They distributed tasks and assignments. There was a galley or a kitchen. There was a little clinic. They kind of had a thieves' honor between them. You don't steal my stuff. I won't steal your stuff. Watch my stuff. I'll watch your stuff, all that. You would have seen them in isolation as a pretty good group of people. But the whole time, they're sailing away from the captain they threw overboard. Therefore, in fact, every act of good was actually a further expression of rebellion. Do you not see that that is humanity in a nutshell? We live life in bodies that God has graciously given us. On a beautiful earth that he created, among many reasons, for us. With all the good things he provides to us. And yet, we basically say, get out of my way. We, in effect, throw them overboard. I'm doing life, doggone it, on my own terms, right? And, of course, yes, yes, people often talk about God 
in doing that, but not the God of the Bible. Not the true and living God. You watch what happens when you actually talk about the true and living God. Who He is. Our need for salvation. What He expects. And baby, that mask comes right off. Does it not? Psalm 2 describes it this way. Why do the nations, King James puts it, the heathen rage against God? Why do they plot in vain? Why do they take their stand against the Lord and His anointed, the Messiah? Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 says, The natural man is at enmity with God. And I have to be honest with you. You can be moral and upright by the ever-changing standards of culture and yet be an absolute enemy of God. There was a group of people, after all, called the Pharisees and many others. See, and, and let me just be clear. It's not just in actuality, if we pull the veil back, that we have a sinful beef against God. It's also in actuality, smiley bumper stickers aside, God has a holy beef against humanity. And when our sin meets his holiness and meets his righteousness, boom, the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, is being stored up and one day it's going to be poured out. The tsunami of God's judgment has been quietly coursing underneath the radar of human history, growing and being stored up. And one day it's going to rise up and then crash down on the beachhead of fallen, mutinous humanity. This is the truth. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember, God is the God of all peace. And we remember that in love, he stepped out. In mercy, God took action. In compassion, he did the work. Christ, the Prince of Peace, made peace by being made to be sin for us. Bearing our sin and absorbing the wrath of God in our place. Out of love on both counts, the Father and Son and the Spirit, working all together to accomplish our salvation. And at the cross, Jesus Christ stepped in the way of the tsunami of God's holy, righteous judgment for each and every person who would believe. That's why the Bible calls him in Ephesians 2, after all, our peace. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame, to bear my shame. And, and you're going to either stand against God, guilty as charged. Stand before God at the end of the age, guilty as charged. Or you can come to him now. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation, my friend? How? how? Wake up! How will you escape? I, I compel you, I urge you, settle out of court right now. Settle out of court with God, believing Jesus took your hit so that you might be absolved and forgiven and pardoned and made alive in him. 
So, and what pains me is some of you will not do that. I don't know who you are, maybe here or listening. You, you, you will not do that. And I say with the Apostle Paul as an ambassador for Christ, as though Christ himself were pleading with you right now, be reconciled to God. It is a point of men wants to die. And after this, the judgment. And the ground zero of peacemaking with God is making sure you have peace with God and God has peace with you. And that was accomplished for all who believed by the blood of the cross. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will never, ever, ever, ever be able to spread the peace of God until you have peace with God. So, do you? Have you laid down your arms of rebellion at the foot of the cross, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and have you been birthed into his kingdom? Now, I do realize that you can actually have peace with God. You've come by faith to Jesus, but be in a season in your life where the gospel is not actually in functioning to propel you to be a peacemaker in these other two ways I want to talk about. What happens is, just to be honest with you, unconfessed sin, unchecked bitterness, Ongoing struggles can all create what Colin Smith calls unresolved conflict in our heart. This is what he said. A person who lives with unresolved conflict in their own heart cannot bring peace to others. Conflict seems to follow some people around. Isn't that true? The reason it follows them around is that it lives in them. What fills you will spill out from you when other people bump into you. You cannot give what you do not functionally have. Hurt people, hurt people. Heal people, who people or people who are being healed are agents of healing in other people's lives. So maybe, as we're going to go to the Lord's table in just a moment, you need to do some business with God through the gospel. You need, you need to confess some unconfessed sin and unchecked bitterness and, and, and bring your struggle into the presence of his, of his banquet hall once again for grace and strength. Be amazed at the gospel. That, okay, I, I got to run here. Relationally, here's the second part. Second way we walk out being a peacemaker. First, personally, making sure we have peace with God. Relationally, Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible so far as depends on you, be at peace with all people, if it's possible. So there's a reality check right there. He's conceding the fact that, guess what, it ain't always going to happen, right? You only can control you, not other people. As much as is, in with, is within you, as it depends on you, as it says, be at peace with all people. But the point is, as much as it does depend on you, right? As far as it depends upon you. So it's a good question to ask ourselves individually, am I a shalom bringer or am I a shalom breaker? Do I contribute to the shalom in all the different circles of my life or do I bring unnecessary conflict? Where others raise their voice, do I lower my voice? Where others criticize, do I seek to compliment? And where I do need to correct, I do it constructively. 
where others love a little bit of drama and the inside scoop, do I ignore that stuff? Where others always seem to assume the worst, do I seek first and foremost to assume the best? It's not a matter of being an extrovert or introvert. You can be quiet, 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 quiet and be nothing but a cold fragmentation relationary grenade. And you can actually be rather outgoing and be one who really does spread shalom. Now here he's just describing how we should be normally. But how about when you actually have real conflict in your life? Don't raise your hands. But does anybody here have real conflict in their lives? And I see hands everywhere, okay? Because this is life in the world. 1 Peter 3.11 gives us our marching orders. Seek peace and pursue it. Are those words of passivity? Seeking, pursuing? No, baby. This ain't passivity. This is activity. This is intentionality. In other words, I, I would summarize what we need to do with this short phrase. We need to eat the cost and make the effort. Because that's exactly what Jesus Christ, the ultimate peacemaker, did when he came here. How did Jesus eat the cost? I don't have time to develop this, but you've heard me do it a thousand times. Remember the stack? All our sin that he took? we got to remember that. Jesus, in his first first coming, he did not come afflicting or inflicting. He came to absorb. He did not come for vengeance. He came for reconciliation. Now to be sure, at his second coming, he's going to wreck shop on all sin and all who will not bow the knee now. And that's why, by the way, he says, don't worry about vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Romans 12, 19, right after that verse I just quoted, says the Lord. And then make the effort. Ephesians 2 said Jesus did this while we were far off. Think about how many steps you talk about making some kind of effort, Jesus made to get to us and to rescue us. The eternal Son of God stepped out of eternity past down to this sin-stricken, mutinous earth. And then for 33 years, one step of obedience after another. Steps of obedience that led him to stepping all the way up to the cross. And I should say, actually, he was nailed to a cross. And then, after he was nailed to a cross, he was buried, but in power, he demonstrated the ultimate effort in coming after us in that he stepped out of the grave. And after he stepped out of the grave, he stepped back up into glory where he's at the Father's right hand. But he didn't stop making an effort then. Then he sent his Spirit so that the Spirit would awaken you to your need for Christ, that you might be birthed into God's family so that the full effect of Jesus' blood would wash over all of your sins, past, present, and future, making you no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God. Some kind of effort that is. God ate the cost and made the effort. And we are to do the same thing relationally. It's hard. Anybody here struggling with that? And you guys know me well. You know I have three sisters and There's like massive estrangement, massive sin, all the rest. And I struggle. Like sometimes I just want to leave them be, leave them be. And I don't know the right way always to interact with them because of their toxicity, but I know I wrestle with this truth that I am to some measure to eat the cost and and, and make the effort. 
as much as is possible within you, be at peace with all people. Now, the third one I'm just going to run through, the upward, evangelistically. Evangel means good news or gospel. You can't be a peacemaker, as we've clearly seen, without the gospel, right? Now, do you have gospel shoes on? I can see some pretty nice shoes out here. Oh, nice socks too, Arpith. I always pick on you up here. I'm so sorry. But here's the thing. Ephesians 6 verse 15 talks about as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness of the gospel of peace, right? Go with the gospel. Be, be a peacemaker so people can be right with God. And we're to do this even with people who've done us wrong. Does the name Rachel Dolander mean anything to you? This is one of the most powerful demonstrations of this I've ever seen. If years back when it all came out, she stood before a man named Larry Nasser. He was a man who grievous, grievously abused a couple hundred young ladies at a minimum. There's probably numbers I don't even know about. 140-something witnesses were brought before him and the court during the whole process. She was the last one to stand up. And what she did is, and, and, and this is often missed in recounting the story of what happened, she first of all urged the court to issue the strongest sentence possible as a message that such monstrous abuse cannot and will not and should never be excused, that kind of barbaric behavior that he did to young female image bearers. And by the way, the gospel gets you right with God, but part of getting right with God is facing the consequences of your earthly sin. It ain't a license to say, well, you know, even though I did that, it doesn't matter. No, you face your consequences. And she righteously and rightly urged the court to issue the most severe penalty possible. But then, then she said this, and I quote her. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible to the courtroom, which he did, if you watched it. And you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is, on that basis, I appeal to you. If you have ever read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is that of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness is not something that comes from doing good things, as if good deeds could erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today, testified against you. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of 
God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. What a testimony of being a peacemaker to someone who committed atrocities. The Bible calls us not just to do that to our enemies, but to extend the message of peace to those who are our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors. I'm closing. We're going to take the Lord's table. Can you imagine the impact we would have if we cared more about people's spiritual safety than their COVID safety? Can you imagine the impact we would have if we cared more about people's eternal security than their financial security? Can you imagine the impact we would have if we cared more about people's spiritual identity than their ethnic identity? You say, that's a false dichotomy. You can be concerned about both. To which I would say, of course, and you know me. There is definitely a warrant to be concerned for all of that. But what if our prevailing passion, our passion that dwarfed all other passions, was Paul's heart in Romans chapter 9 when he said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, my brothers, according to the flesh. Just what if our prevailing passion was to see people rightly related to God? Can you imagine what kind of lighthouse this church would be? So what are you going to do about this message? Do you, do you have a phone? Can you make a call to somebody today? Do you have pen and a paper? Can, can, you, can you write a letter to somebody today? Do you have a wallet? Can you, can you give to somebody today? Do you have a kitchen? Can you make a meal for somebody? Do you have two hands? Can you serve somebody? Do you have two feet? Can you go visit somebody? Do you have two ears? Can you listen to somebody? Do you have two eyes? Can you look at humanity as Jesus does when he wept over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stoned the prophets. How often I would, but you would not come. And most of all, do you have two lips that will share the message of peace? Christ, Him crucified, Him risen. I think all of this is what it means. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is the word of the living God.